Let's get into Bible verse of Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is a really in-depth passage and it's dealing with a lot of prophecy and dealing with time. But to get the sense of where we're at with Matthew, let's put ourselves in, uh, in what Jesus is doing. He's walking on that Tuesday of his final week. He's teaching in the temple and as he's, he's now Sunday, remember he marched into the parade. Monday he cleansed the temple. Tuesday he's in the temple. He has a lot of uh, controversy, a lot of opposition comes up. The, the Pharisees start it and then other groups get involved. The confrontation ends up Jesus condemning them, pronouncing woes upon those people. As he wraps up his ministry and sometime during that day he sees a widow woman putting money in the offering and he makes several comments about her. Now we're back in Matthew recording and Matthew is the only one that records this instance in Matthew 23 verse 37, 38, 39. In Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you killed the prophets, you stoned them which are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers the chickens under her wings? But you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, but I say you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Most scholars believe this is when he speaks this is late on Tuesday and he's wrapping up his ministry. Matthew's the only one that records this. Now this isn't the first time that Jesus has wept over or pleaded over Jerusalem. He did it when he is approaching Jerusalem on Sunday, if you recall Luke 19, as he's approaching Jerusalem and the crowds are cheering on Palm Sunday, he's weeping, he's wailing, and he's talking about how Jerusalem, he's mourning for them. He seems to do the same thing again on, in, uh, according to Matthew on Tuesday, and it might be when he's exiting the city, and as he's leaving, he's talking about how I would have ministered to you, I would have gathered you, but you have rejected me in the conversations that he's had with those religious leaders. The setting for Matthew recording it is really, really makes sense. Matthew is the one who has already recorded most of his woes on the leadership, his condemnation. Matthew is the one that records all three of his predictions that he's given in the last three days about the city being destroyed. Do you remember that in Matthew, it was talked about the cursing of the fig tree. Matthew records that. So do a couple of the others, but Matthew records all three of these. Matthew also records the parable of the talents, where the, the tenants, excuse me, that rebel and the king sends the messengers back to destroy the city. Matthew also records the parable of the marriage feast where they've rejected after the third invitation, they killed the servants. So Matthew records damnation, destruction, woes upon the people. So it makes sense that Matthew record this, Jesus' feelings. And so as Jesus is leaving, it's very obvious he really loves the city. That's no surprise. Okay, if we go back to the Old Testament, there are comments made by God, a lot of them, but I've just highlighted a few, where he talks about Jerusalem and says, you're the crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, you're a royal diadem or jewel in the diadem of God. Where Zechariah says, I have returned to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. It'll be called a faithful city. This is prophetic. It's kind of uh, the idea of what's going to happen to the city. Beautiful in elevation. It's the joy of Mount Zion, he talks about. In Ezekiel, he talks about, you are at an age for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you. Who does that remind you of? What story in the Bible? Where they're spreading a garment over to show... 
yeah, Ruth and Boaz, yeah. And I spread the garment to cover your nakedness. I made my vow to you and you entered my covenant. And then he calls in Zechariah, Jerusalem, you're the apple of my eye. So it's no surprise that Jesus would have feelings for the city. And so now, after all the rejection, he's leaving, he's making these comments, and he uses a an image that isn't unique. It's used in the Old Testament several times. And in that image, he's talking about how the, uh, the hen and the chicks and how he would care for them. And so he's giving that same type of an illustration, but he's talking about you're going to be destroyed. Your desolation is upon you. And he's warning them that it's going to be coming really soon. And he's going to give them a lot more information in the next few minutes about it. But basically what he's talking about is you won't see me you know, in the future, I'm going to be departing. You aren't going to see me until the second coming. And the second coming will be just something really changing. So what we want to conclude is this. Just out of these three verses is some thoughts. God's compassion for the Jewish people was absolutely phenomenal. It's tested time and time again. The Jews have, well, let me rephrase this. Did your kids ever test you with your compassion by some of their conduct? Okay, it happens. And so you maintain... You know, that compassion, compassionate uh, care for them as well as instruction. So he's saying that God really cared for this city. God remains faithful, though the Jerusalem didn't. Now remember, Jerusalem is described as a, um, an adulterous woman, that she has gone off and she's, you know, loyalty to somebody else. And so you have that whole story of, of uh, uh, Gomer in the Old Testament with the prophet. And, and there's all these, these comments about God's faithfulness. God's very patient. He's persistent in offering forgiveness. We know as well that he is ready to extend the forgiveness if there's a response. Jesus is saying, I would have, I would have. I was more than willing to reach out, grab you, but you have to make some type of rea response to me. And there, but there's a, there's a line here, and this is very important. God's forgiveness has a limitation to it where God tries to call them back, calls for repentance, but there's a limit. The same thing shows up in Proverbs chapter 1, where he talks about, he says in Proverbs 1, that, that people will go astray, and he says, eventually, I will laugh at your calamities. And when you call, I won't respond. And that is dealing with somebody who has gone so far astray that they've become hard-hearted, and then the only reason they call upon God is, get me out of the trouble I'm in. There's no repentance. And so uh, it's just, you know, it's just... Uh, not repentance of sin, but rather it's just regret that I'm in trouble. And so he makes these comments. Then, right after that, Matthew records this section that is really, really a loaded section of information. It is what we call the Olivet Discourse. What, um, what is meant by that is Jesus is speaking as he's headed towards the Mount of Olives. And so what happens to get the setting, it's very, very important to understand the whole, the whole gist of it. Is it a little bit nippy in here? Let me turn on some heat. Okay? Give you a little bit more heat. It feels like some of you look like you're getting cool. Um, this is the longest prophetic discourse given in Scripture. Okay? Um, we have Matthew 24 and 25. There's a lot of detail about the future. He's going to focus in on the tribulation, the second coming, the regathering of Israel, and heaven. And he gives a lot of details here. And so Matthew is the one that records his sermons, like Sermon on the Mount. He recorded that one, records a lot of the parables. Now he records an extended passage that Jesus is going to make as they are leaving Jerusalem. It's Tuesday afternoon. They're walking out of the city. As they leave, the comments are made 
by the disciples in verse 1 that are interesting. The disciples, as they went out, departed the temple, and Mark includes part of the, as they're headed towards Bethany. So they've left the city, and it says his disciples came to him to show him the buildings. So they're leaving the city, and the disciples are saying, see, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? Because Jesus has just said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you're going to become desolate. And so they're responding and they're bragging about it. And he's made the observation, Jerusalem has refused me. They've rejected me. He's told them about, uh, about those things. And that prompts the disciples' question, uh, uh, comments. They say, yeah, but this is a beautiful city. Understand Jewish thinking at that time. It's like your American thinking. If you're traveling abroad, you're going somewhere, you're going to talk about the beauties of America. What country has the most beautiful sites? Several of you immediately said, United States because you're proud of that area. Well the Jews were very proud of Jerusalem of that time and of that era actually all the time because it's the, the beloved city. It's the jewel in the crown. It is, um, it is the apple of God's eye. So you understand where they're coming from that they would respond. But understand as well that back in those days and I'd like to remind you somebody asked me again afterwards A-N-E means not a movie channel. Okay, A-N-E means ancient Near Eastern. So I'm talking about the whole Mediterranean world when I put that up. Okay, the, the, the thought was your deity, whoever, if this, if this building were dedicated to Apollos, Apollos would protect this building. If it's to Zeus, Zeus would protect the temple that is dedicated. So there's concept in mind, both in the pagan and in the Jewish mind, that God would protect the city of Jerusalem. It's his dwelling place. He won't let anything bad happen to it. Now that's not what the Old Testament says, but that's what their current thinking is, if they don't have that Old Testament to go back to. And God had protected Israel multiple times, and now when they're leaving, Jerusalem looks better now than it ever did. I know that in the history, the golden days were David and Solomon. But under Herod, Herod had rebuilt the city. It was much bigger. It was more modern. Um, they had aqueducts. They didn't have that back in the Old Testament. The temple has been rebuilt. Under Herod, he has been building this up for decades, and he's dead, but his sons have continued the project. And so they've been building. In fact, don't you remember in John where he says, destroy this temple, and in three days... I'll build it up. And they say, how can that be? Herod has been building this for, anybody remember? 50 years. Okay, so they, they, this has been a massive building project that's been going on. The city, the temple, the surroundings. The temple is much bigger now than it was in Solomon's day. I'm not talking about the Holy of Holies. I'm not talking about the inner sanctum. I'm talking about the temple proper. And so it's expansive. It's beautiful. In fact, understand that uh, in ancient literature, um, I have two different people I quote. Tacitus is a Roman. Tacitus is a Roman historian, and he called the temple one of the great wonders of the ancient world. So in Josephus, who's Jewish, he called it a great temple. Herod, when he built it, Herod said, I'm going to build Jerusalem to rival the pyramids. His thought was both in structure and in longevity. And so this building program for the Jews, they're proud of it. They hate Herod. They hate his family. But they're really glad with what he's done. And so they're bragging about the temple. It is beautiful. When the sun comes up, it's glistening. 
This city is just marvelous. And so by the ancient world, now you and I may not think it's as beautiful as modern architecture or modern construction, but back in the days of the Bible, it was a masterpiece. So understand, you're walking out of the city, you, uh, you know that the world marvels at Jerusalem, and Jesus has just said it's going to be destroyed. So the guys are going to brag upon the building. How can this be destroyed? It's being built to last forever, like the pyramids. And so this, these comments are coming from, um, from people, especially under, remember, the disciples aren't native to Jerusalem. The majority of them are Galileans. They only come down to Jerusalem once, twice a year. And so they're really wowed. I mean, what up in Galilee rivals the massiveness of the temple? Nothing. This is like taking, you know, mom, pa, kettle out of the wilderness and sticking them in the big city. And they're impressed by running water out of the faucet. Okay, some of you don't have any clue what I'm talking about, okay? Okay, but, you know, it's that, you know, it's that idea, uh, uh, let me see if I can try it with more modern. Beverly Hillbillies? <laughs> I'm still in the same area. It's taking people out of their, out of their you know, backwoods and putting them into the city, and they're marvel, marveling at everything. You know, they're just amazed. That's the Galileans. So no wonder when Jesus said the city's going to be destroyed, they're going, really? It's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. How can anybody, you know, God, you even say that? So the point is Jesus isn't impressed by buildings. Are we impressed by buildings? Okay, when people built in the Middle Ages... Why did they build such big buildings for churches? Yeah, it was to impress people. It was all about impressing people. And you wanted, to, you wanted people to be impressed with your deity, with your God. So you built these massive cathedrals. And by the way, the flip, there's also this thought. If you were building something for your God, and this was your way to work your way to heaven, would you, what, what would you do? your very best, you would really exp go, you know, you know, and so you're trying to portray your God to people. So we understand, and that's the Jewish concept at that time. So they're struggling with this, and Jesus is commenting, he said the entire thing is going to come tumbling down. It's going to be destroyed. And so to them, these are shocking words. To them, they don't understand what's, what he's talking about. And so they make comment to him. They're impressed. Now watch how he responds. They, he responds, and they say that the buildings are wonderful. In verse 2, See you not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not what? There's not going to be a stone upon a stone. Well, you in Bible days, what do you think he's saying? Oh, let's rephrase that. You in 2017, what's he saying about this city? It's going to, it, it's going to, be, it's going to be bombed. Okay, that's a good way. It's going to be wiped out. It's going to be totally wiped out. That, that would be shocking to them. And so they respond after they've said, this is wonderful, this is beautiful. He says, it may, you may think it is, but it's going to be wiped out in a short time, actually. It's going to be destroyed. And then, verse 3, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, now he's exited, got to the hillside, looking back towards the city. The disciples came to him and they said, um, when shall these things happen? What shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? How did they go there? How did they get from the city being destroyed to the second coming to the end of the world? How did they put those all in one sentence? It's because of Jewish thinking, Jewish theology. 
And so here's where they're at. They're looking and they're, they're basing their questions on Old Testament prophecies. In Old Testament prophecies, as they would understand, they knew that there was a problem. Let's go all the way back to Daniel. Daniel is written at the time where they're in Babylon. Okay, The city of Jerusalem is, what's its status when Daniel is writing? Anybody remember? Pardon me? It's destroyed. There is no Jerusalem. At the time that Daniel is writing Daniel 9, there's no Jerusalem. It's been de devastated and destroyed for how many years now? This is a key in prophecy. 70 years. It's been, nobody's lived there. It's been total, and, and Daniel in Daniel 9 is reading the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is saying, as Daniel's having his devotions, it says, in, after 70 years of desolation, what's going to happen? Somebody's going to go back and rebuild the city and the temple. So Daniel's reading his devotions in Daniel 9, comes across 70, he's a mathematician, he's a smart guy. Hey, that means next year. It's, he's writing in the 60, reading in the 69th year. That means the temple's going to be rebuilt. Maybe God will come back when it's being rebuilt. And so Daniel is writing under the impression that when Jerusalem is rebuilt and it's, it's prosperous again, there's second coming. He's, he's heard that from prophecy. But God says that's not the way it's going to work, Daniel. I need to tell you that it's going to be rebuilt and then it's going to be destroyed again, and then it will be rebuilt again, and sometime after that I'm coming. So he gives them the 70 weeks of prophecy to fill in some of those gaps, that there's going to be 70 sevens, or 490 years, after it's rebuilt, etc., etc., and then until the second coming. And so Daniel's prophecy is very interesting, where he's coming from. But Daniel isn't the last tidbit. Then after Daniel, the city has been rebuilt, the Jews are there, Zechariah is writing in a time period that the city is under siege. The city is again being attacked. Several hundred years after Daniel, Zechariah is ministering. And he is saying, you know, in the future, the city is going to be attacked. When it's attacked, the Gentiles will take over. And in Zechariah 11, 12, 13, 14 talks about how the city will be there, they'll be surrounded, it'll be destroyed, it'll be attacked, and the Messiah will come and rescue the very few Jews at the, that are remaining, and he'll save the remnant, one-third of the Jews. He gives a very specific prophecy. Then Messiah will set up his kingdom and he will have a beautiful kingdom and they will even put holy, holy, holy on the bridles of the horses and even on the garbage can lids. Okay, and so he gives all that information. And so the Jews, here, here the disciples are. They're several generations further ahead of Zechariah and they know that Zechariah predicted destruction to the city but then... The Messiah will come and rescue the people when they are about to be annihilated and then he'll establish his kingdom. So they've heard that for years. Jesus just predicted the destruction of the city. It's going to be destroyed. Their mind goes right back to Zechariah. That means the city gets destroyed, Messiah rescues it, and then he sets up his kingdom and his kingdom means the end of the world. So they're responding with what prophecy they understand. And so they're putting it together. Here's Jewish prophetic timeline. If you're giving a Jewish timeline, okay, with their basic understanding, there's two different ages, pre 
second coming, pre, pre-Christ kingdom, post-kingdom. Okay? So basically there's a future eternal age and there's the age we're living in. We're living in this age, this Jewish. We're living in the, from the disciples' point of view. We're living in a time period that's prior to the kingdom being established. And so Jesus is going to come back and he's going to establish this perpetual kingdom. So when the disciples hear Jesus make comment, they're thinking that Jesus is talking right about this time period. What happens at the end of the first age when it's pre-setting up the kingdom? They know Old Testament says at the end of the first age it's going to end up with persecution of the Jews. They know that from Zechariah. They know that it says the Gentiles will be in total control. They know that the city will be destroyed. They know from prophecy then Messiah will come right when they're about to be annihilated and rescue the one-third. They know that then that ushers in the kingdom and the second coming. So when Jesus says the city is being destroyed, they immediately jump here. And they, they think we're living right here. This is what he's talking about. So it must be happening real fast. It's going to be coming any moment. That's their thinking. That's how they understand prophecy with limited knowledge. And so when he says the city's being destroyed, well, when, you, when are you setting up your kingdom? What, what, what exactly, when is this happening? You're leaving, you're coming back, you've said you're going to be leaving, so when is this all happening? You've been talking about your kingdom and you've been talking about destruction of Jerusalem. How many days? How many weeks? How many months until this all takes place? And so Jesus is going to give them a lot of information about a gap of time in here that he's going to be talking about and giving them details. He says that the city is about to be destroyed and then, okay, you know, this is what the Jews are thinking, okay? When is this all happening? Um, Jesus' answer. Now, Jesus is going to give an answer, and it's, it's complementary to other prophecy. They all have to work together. In his answer in Matthew 24 and 25, he never mentions the church. In fact, let me show you. Here's, here's where you get into, into confusion. Jump down to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, he says... Okay, verse 40. Two are in the field, one shall be what? I'm in Matthew 24, verse 40. One is going to be taken and the other one is what? Yeah. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other one left. What's he talking about? Be careful. Be careful. We, most of us will respond immediately and say, he's talking about what event? The rapture. That's not true. He's not talking rapture. How do I know that? Context. In the context, we'll get into it and I'll show you even more. But he's not talking about church. The rapture is for the church. It's not for the nation of Israel. If the Jews get saved today, they are part of the church. They are not a separate entity. Okay? They are part of the church. Okay? And what he's talking about here is beyond the rapture, post post-rapture, okay? He's only talking about Israel's prophetic future and what's going to happen to them. There's no rapture. There's no Bema seat. Bema seat is for the church age. It's for us. It is not for the Jews, whether they get saved. The sheep-goat judgment that he talks about in Matthew 24 and 25, that's not for us. We get judged at a totally different judgment called the Bema seat. 
So he's not talking church at this moment. He's talking Jerusalem and Jews. What's going to happen to them? He's going to be talking about the period of time called the tribulation. The last 70 weeks. Daniel has talked about that and given a lot of different detail. Jesus is going to fill in the gaps now. And going to give more information based on Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. Um, and so he's, he's building Jewish prophecy dealing with the kingdom, dealing with the second coming, dealing with this destruction of Jerusalem. Let me, let me take you back to Daniel, okay, just briefly. Daniel has said that in the future sometime, there's, a, there's going to be 490 years from the time that they rebuild the city and he's given information in Daniel chapter 9 about how many years. He's given details up to 483 years that in that period of time they will come back, rebuild, Messiah will show up during those 483 years, Messiah will be cut off, it says. That word means he will be martyred, he will be killed. Then, he says, the city will be destroyed and then they will have trouble for an extended period of time. 483 years, the, the uh, treaty was signed. Messiah came right around 4 B.C. He comes. He gets cut off right around 28 A.D. Did the city get destroyed? 70 A.D. Then there's an ongoing period of a flood of desolation. Then, he says, sometime after that, the final seven years that we refer to as the tribulation, the Bible calls the great tribulation, Jacob's trouble, the worst time in history, it'll start with what event? The signing of a covenant between the new world ruler and the Jews. The new world ruler at that time is... Antichrist, okay? And so he's talking about that last seven years. The last seven years will, will be cut in two halves. In the prophecy, there's a three-and-a-half-year period and a three-and-a-half-year period. In book of Revelation, it's called 42 months, 42 months. Book of Revelation, 1,260 days, 1,260 days. All of it is very consistent all the way through prophecy. This period begins with a treaty signed by, by Antichrist, so it can't be in our time period. It's not happening today. How do I know that? 2 Thessalonians says that Antichrist will not be revealed until we are taken away. Okay? That which is holding back sin is taken away. Then Antichrist is revealed. How is he revealed? By signing this covenant with Israel. Is it Donald Trump? I don't know and you don't know, okay? I mean, you, you want to see all the articles about Obama being Antichrist, Google it. It's pages and pages, okay? It, you, before him, it was George Bush and it was Clinton and it goes, and people have been guesstimating for all of our time and they'll continue to do so. We don't know. He'll only be revealed. Could he be alive today? The answer is, that's possible, okay? We don't know. Okay, in the middle of this three and a half years, there's going to be the breaking of the treaty. So let's say over here on that side of the platform, over there by that tree, 
the treaty is done. In the middle, Antichrist will break the treaty with the Jews, and there's all, Revelation talks about him suffering a head wound at this point, point, that there's going to be all kinds of catastrophes that will really generate. Satan's kicked out of heaven at this point. The second half, then, will become the worst time for the Jews. Now, it's been difficult all along. But now it's going to become the great tribulation for the Jews. Then Antichrist at the end will be put down by Jesus Christ. He will come and he will rescue the city as they are about to be destroyed. They are surrounded. He will reclaim and recover one-third of the Jews. Right at the second coming. What big battle do we call it is taking place at that moment? Armageddon. And then Antichrist will be defeated. Then after that he will set up this kingdom that will be for the thousand years. This is what we're going to talk about tonight. That the heaven will be on earth for a thousand years. When we sing the song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing tr through. Really? Will earth be our home, okay, in heaven? We go to heaven. Eventually it will. This earth will be. Okay, we're coming back to this earth to live at least for a thousand years and then this earth is going to be remade and that will be eternity. So we live on earth. We don't live in heaven for eternity. We'll talk about tonight um, with that in mind. So that gives you a basic idea. Now, the Jews, don't, the, the disciples don't understand all this. They just understand the destruction. Now Jesus is going to give them that information that he's explaining Daniel and he's filling in the gaps. And he's saying to them, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to leave, and when I leave, you know, I'm going to come back. But before I come back, sometime in the distant future, here's what you're going to experience. We're jumping down now to verse 4, the end of verse 4. Take heed that no man deceive you. And he's giving descriptions. For many shall come, I'm in Matthew 24, verse 4. Many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and, I sh and will deceive many. You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but, key phrase, this is not the end. This is not the end yet, guys. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilence, earthquakes, diverse, all these are the what? The beginning. So what those three verses give us the first part of the tribulation that Daniel has talked about. They give us the first three and a half years. It's described as a lot of religious deception. Now, folk, we have it today, don't we? Do we have religious deception going on today? Yeah, this just means it's going to magnify. And so there's going to be a lot more. There's going to be political upheaval in that first three and a half years. The wars, the rumors of wars. There's going to be a lot of natural catastrophes, famines, pestilence, earthquakes. That's all in the beginning. Now let me throw it in. Next week I'll, I'll give you more. I'm going to print it out for you. I'll need to do that. That'll be helpful. You go to the book of Revelation, and in the book of Revelation, read chapter 5 and 6. It's identical. In chapter 5 and 6, it's all in the first half of the tribulation. It is called the seal judgments in Revelation chapters 5 and 6. The seal judgments, the first four horses are death, disease, famine, and warfare. Okay? That are going to be happening. Where there's all kinds of the same identical things. See, what I'm getting at is Daniel gave this. Jesus gives more. The book of Revelation gives more. And guess what? They all overlap. It's all complementary. There are no prophetic, prophetic conflicts. 
if you approach the scriptures with understanding a dispensational form of understanding. Dispensations is coming out of Ephesians chapter 1 where he says there are different ages in the past, the present, the future, where God works in different ways, different, different uh, obligations and responsibilities. In the dispensation that, that Jesus is teaching, he is living in the Old Testament dispensation. He is talking about a future period of time. And as he's teaching, he is going to say there's a future period of time. It's going to be the church, and they will operate different than what the Old Testament um, law operated. When it ends, that'll be the last seven years for Israel. It'll be a, almost a reversion back to the Old Testament law system to finish out the time. And that means we don't blend the church with Israel. There's no conflict. We, we don't see baptism and circumcision for children being the same thing. Did I just lose you on that? Okay. Because churches have said, well, wait a minute, they circumcised children by the eighth day that helped them be part of the covenant, so let's baptize children to make them part of the family of God. Okay, that's blending two totally different, different um, eras of responsibility. Circumcision was under the law. There is no circumcision today under the, in religious practice. Baptism doesn't equate to circumcision. It's not for children. It's for who? Believers. Got to be a believer. And so things changed. And so we're living in a time period that he's not even talking about here. But if we understand dispensationally and approach it and say God is dealing with Israel in Matthew 24 and 25, man, does this make sense? And it complements all these passages. He makes this comment. He says these are only the beginning. It's the first three and a half years. Only the first three and a half years where he says. Then the next verses deal with the middle of the tribulation. Now, according to the book of Daniel, it's, the middle has to do with the breaking of a treaty. According to the book of Revelation, Satan is cast out of heaven. He comes down to this earth for he's never allowed back into heaven. He comes down to this earth be, and he realizes, I want to test your memory here, his time is short. So how is he responding? With vehement vengeance. He comes, according to the book of Revelation, he comes down as a dragon ready to swallow up the woman with the 12 stars standing on the moon who has to flee from Jerusalem? The Jews. He's going to attack them and go after them. Because if he can wipe out the Jews, what has he done? What has Satan done if he can destroy all the Jews? Yeah, he's ruined God's plan. He has shown that God cannot protect the Jews. God has made a covenant with the Jews that says, you will be my nation in eternity. And so if he can wipe them all out, he can destroy them all. God is impotent. God cannot protect and fulfill. So his coming to this earth, being cast out of heaven, he is coming and he is going to take great vengeance against the Jews. Revelation talks about that, chapter 12. That is the beginning of those judgments called the trumpet judgments, the uh, vile judgments, where it's going to be a terrible, terrible time, especially for the Jews. Jesus is speaking in Matthew chapter 24. He is talking to Jewish people. He is explaining what's going to happen to their people at the middle of the tribulation. He says, verse 9, they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall what? 
kill you, you shall be what? Hated of all nations for my name's sake. Okay? Right now, right now, is Israel hated by all nations? Who is their ally? The United States. Okay? And so some of the Western world is part of their allies. But in the tribulation, what's going to happen? Everybody is after Israel. What does that tell you about the United States? Yeah, we're not, we're not, something's changed. Maybe we've gone back and re-elected Obama. Um, or somebody of that ilk. Okay. Hillary? Okay. It's going to be somebody of a political ilk. Either the United States is out of, here, here's what, here's just, I don't know. I don't know. Either what happens here is the United States is a non-factor in the future. We are not a powerhouse, which is a very good possibility. Or the leadership of the United States has readopted that policy of anti-Israel. Okay? Now, there's something here that probably gets me to think the second is very, very possible. Because who's all missing? We're all gone. The political element of the United States that is, the, that is more of the pro-Israel, they're out of here. They're gone. You take away the evangelical communities, you know, vote towards pro-Israel, there's not a whole lot in America pro-Israel, okay? And so we don't know. We just don't know about those things. And I'm, I'm using political figures right now not to bust on them in all areas, but they have a point of view. The more of that liberal point of view was anti-Israel uh, that, was, that was coming up. It's going to return there. And so we're not living in this time period. We still are pro-Israel. He's saying in that time period, nobody will come to their defense at that time. He goes on and he says there's something else going to be happening. Verse 11, many more false prophets shall rise and deceive many. Oh, by the way, doesn't Revelation 13 say the, the false prophet will rise at this time and will do miracles and will tell people they need to take the mark? Is it the right or left hand? Is it the left? I forget. They're going to take the mark of the beast here or here and they all worship the beast. And so it's going to become even more. And, and in order to get people to worship the beast, according to Revelation, what does the false prophet have the ability to do? Um, not the fire. The fire is God's two prophets. Okay, control all buying, selling. Supernaturally, what will he be able to do? Signs, wonders, and miracles and he goes on in verse 12, because of the iniquity shall abound, what will happen? The love of many shall... Yeah, they're not going to be tolerant of one another. Basically, the bottom line becomes society at that point. If you are limited in food you can get, how much charity will you express towards others? Because who are you going to be focused on? Your family, yourself. Okay, and so Jesus is giving a little bit of indication... What was that? <laughs> oh, my word. Man, that's just wrong. <laughs> Verse 13. He that shall endure unto the end, what? Who's he mean that he shall endure, shall be saved? Who's in mind? Jews. Jews. 
the Jews who endure to the end, they shall be saved. So he's given us, he's given us some of that middle and what it's going to be like, and he's given, talk about the great wickedness, and he's talking about some being saved, but watch, he says, the gospel, verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. Despite all the wickedness, what's going to happen? God's going to do a work. He's going to continue doing a work. Now he gives us a little bit more detail, verse 15, about that second half, where he says in verse 15, let me continue on here for just a second. Verse 15, he says, Now, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel, okay, Daniel spoke of an abomination of desolation. That means somebody goes in. This is Daniel 11. That uh, somebody will go into the holy of holies and desecrate it. Well, according to 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians, the, first, the one who goes in and stands in the Holy of Holies and says, I am God, is who? Antichrist. Okay, and he will exalt himself as God. And so he, Jesus is predicting, says, this is going to happen. And watch what he goes on. Let them which be in Jerusalem flee. Let him which is on the housetop not come down. Neither let him which is in the field return for his clothes. Woe unto them that are with child, caring for children, to them that are nursing the children. Pray that your flight be not in the winter. Therefore, why? Verse 21. For then shall be what period? The great tribulation at this moment, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. In fact, except those days should be, what was the result? Nobody's going, it's going to be so bad that everybody would die. Now, book of Revelation says in the first half, uh, one out of three. In the second half, one out of four will die. And it's just, it's a horrible, horrible, horrible time. And unless God intervenes at the end of the seven years, mankind will destroy himself. And so he's given this information about it, and he's going to add some more detail. The, here's the question I have. Okay, I'll stop here. How is it that except those days be shortened, everyone's going to die? Now, here's the reason I ask this question. Think about it this week. He has already given predictions Seven years, three and a half years, three and a half years, 1260 days, 1260 days, 42 months, 42 months. It's been really kind of specific how many days in the tribulation. So how can the days be shortened without contradicting himself? Does that make sense? Okay. How can he say, I'm going to shorten the days when he's already laid this all out and given the specifics? We either have a contradiction in this text or we're not fully understanding it. What do you think it is? I'll guarantee you it's not a contradiction. Okay. It's not a contradiction. I'll tell you next week. Okay.